Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Glad we're going to have this time together. I'm looking forward to the next couple of hours. It's going to be a, a wonderful time. Dr. Alex McFarland is going to be joining me in just a minute. And then after him, I'm have Friday with friends. You'll get a chance to meet an old and very dear friend of mine. And in an hour two, Dr. Mark Rutland will be joining the show. Um, and we're going to talk about his new book about healing. So that's going to be what's on store for today. I love this verse. I think I memorized it. 30 years ago, maybe longer, and it's 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And that verse came up today in my Bible study this morning, and I tried to step up to say exactly what it meant, and I found myself going, I don't know if I got that right. So I thought, I'm going to call Alex and let him sort that out for me. So uh, Dr. Alex McFarland is an apologist, an author, evangelist, and he's a religion and culture expert he has spoken in over and preached in over 2,000 churches across North America, and he does a lot of international work as well. He uh, is the founder of the Truth for a New Generation uh, conferences, and he is uh, a regular guest on the show. Alex, welcome. Well, it's great to be with you, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, indeed. So we talked about that verse this morning in Second Timothy, and we got involved with the word rebuking. When do we use the word rebuking? Wow. Well, um, you know, I think rebuking, at least in the context of this verse, which uh, it's really a word for uh, correction, um, when people have uh, beliefs that need to be changed or actions that need to be changed. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the Word of God, and by the way, I love that verse too, the 2 Timothy 3.16. Love it. That was one I, I learned early in my Christian life as well. And and I want to come back to a couple of those words in just a minute. But, um, you, know, you know, the word rebuke, it, it sounds harsh, you know, like you're maybe, you know, pushing back, you know, very heavy-handed on somebody. But there, there are times when a, a gentle rebuke or a necessary rebuke is a very loving act, you know? Um and so when people have um, incorrect beliefs or sinful actions that not only are against the Word of God but are contributing to their own destruction, um, a, a godly rebuke is necessary I, and, and beneficial and, I think, very compassionate, actually. Mm-hmm. But you have these four words, uh, Alex, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why, mm-hmm. why not just training in righteousness, correcting, rebuking, teaching. I'm just trying to sort out the differences. And I was uh, talking about this in the Bible study this morning, and uh, Brian, one of the guys, said, well, if you get rebuked, how long do you have to wait before you rebuke back? Well, uh, I don't know. Uh, We we have to be be sure whether or not a a rebuke back is (laughs) is necessary or justified. Right. But, um, you know, the, the apparent severity of this verse, uh, 
uh, I think is because of the severity of our sin problem. Mm-hmm. You know, um, instruction, conviction, correction, training. Now, in righteousness, all of these are in righteousness, really. Not just training in righteousness, but but we we need righteous instruction. That's truth. We need righteous conviction. That means awareness of our sin and responding to the pull of the Holy Spirit to turn away from sin. We need righteous correction to move from that which is false and wrong to that which is true and correct. And then we need to grow and mature. You know, the word training um, is really the word from which we get the word pedagogy. It, uh, if we have Bill, if we have any musicians listening, they know what you know. If you're a piano student, there's what's called keyboard pedagogy, because you're learning those scales and learning those inversions, so you become more and more, um, you know, adept to the keyboard. Well, the training in righteousness is it's interesting. A believer that's a decade into their Christian walk or 20 years into their Christian walk, uh, we know more about what it means to trust God. We know more about what it means to pray with power. We, we hopefully know more about what it means to be able to mortify the flesh and say no to our sin nature that will rear its tempting head. You know? Mm-hmm. So, my goodness, the Second Timothy 3.16, there's just a world of truth here. And, and it's hard truth. Let me, let me just say about rebuking. Um, people nowadays, we're, we're in a place where even within the church, you know, calling people to repent and no equivocation, no rationalization, but look, turn from sin to Christ. Uh, our world today, that's, that's not what a lot of people are thinking about hearing, is it? No, not at all. Not at all. So, um, do, do you lead a Bible study, or you reference this verse as part of a, your Bible study? In yeah, a friend of mine and I co-lead a little study on on Fridays, and so sometimes when you get a, a challenging verse, we all uh, try to make a contribution. And I, I thought I was going to be able to shed some clarity on it, and it turned out as I got done hearing myself talk, I thought I probably need a little refresher course on this one because how often are we doing rebuking? And just the other day, I was reminded of that passage in Proverbs 27 where it says open rebuke is better than secret love. Uh, so oh, I know. there's value to uh, confronting another brother or sister in Christ and doing it lovingly. But the word rebuke uh, just seems so intense. And I, at what point do you rebuke someone when they're in such incredibly obvious blatant sin? Uh, or do you or, or how do you do this? This is why I thought maybe we could have this conversation today. Well, you, you know what? Um, the, believe me, I realize, you know, people today, uh, they would be offended and they would be, you know, and they would consider it just a real affront if if somebody rebuked them. But listen, we're, we're talking about the souls of people Amen. and ultimately the future of the country, you know. Um, like, like I said earlier, rebuke can be actually a great, great, great act of love. Um, how long to the break? I'd uh, like to three tell, minutes. Uh, okay. Hey, let me tell you something very quickly. When I was in college, I sold cars 
uh, for a while at a at a car dealership because I'm like really really into cars. I love cars and so sold cars and did very well at it. In my sales training, I um, I remember I had you know two weeks of training at this dealership, and it was funny because um, the guy said, uh, "Make sure the person understands they're buying a car." <laughs> now you've done you've you've done the test drive. You've uh, demonstrated, you've answered the questions, they've filled out a credit application, they've put a down payment, you give them a, you know, a amortization schedule for their payments, and they're handing, you know, the keys to the purchaser, and people would say, wait, wait, hang on, you mean I'm, I'm really committing to this? And, and I asked the sales trainer guy, I said, what do you mean make sure they understand they're buying a car? How could they not know this? And he said, well, a lot of people, man, they, they'll sign the papers, and they're about to drive off the lot, and there's the occasional customer. They'll go, wait, wait, you mean I'm you know, really committing to this? And I was thinking about that, Bill, because when it comes to sharing the gospel, we need to help people understand actually what they're signing up for. Mm-hmm. Because the gospel is, is more than just accept Christ, and decades from now, when I die, I'll go to heaven. I mean, it is that, but when you become a believer, you are committing, at least biblically, I mean, you're committing that from now on, I will be a follower of Jesus and his word. A Christian is a disciple, a submitted, yielded follower of Christ from this day forward. And, you know, that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20, that we, we are not our own. So if you have accepted the blessing of forgiveness, you also have accepted the responsibility of sonship. And and I, I think part of the reason that rebuke uh, and correction would be grounds for, you know, a split, if not a lawsuit in some churches, if we said, look, you know, immoral person, carnal, backslidden Christian, the Word of God condemns you, and people would fly apart, is because we've told them all about the, the, the privilege of forgiveness, but we haven't told them about the responsibility of obedience. Mm. Yeah, so well said. Great, great reminder, uh, Alex. Well, Peter Crave, great apologist, Peter Crave, he said, the modern American demands truth in every area of life except religion. He says, most people, this is Peter Crave here, most people would, quote, rather go through life deceived that he was a good man and discover he was wrong than be told he was a bad man and find out he was right. And And so... Part of the reason our nation is is really in the anarchy that we're in is because we, the church, the uh, the guardians and proclaimers of truth, we've we've soft pedaled it and watered things down, and we need to tell people. And hey, Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and all of these people that have built their whole political career around abortion and moral relativism, and now we've got homosexuality and transgenderism waiting in the bullpen at their turn at bat is, you know, pederasty, pedophilia, 
polyamorous relationships, polygamy. Um, I'm telling you, we are coming under the judgment of God, and in eternity, these these people, unless they repent, will forever be under the judgment of God. And and the Scripture invites us to experience the blessing of new life in Jesus. But those of us who have found Christ, we're not up on some moral high horse because it's God's truth, not our own. But we need to be honest and tell the world that sin is toxic and we'll pay in this life and the next if we don't turn from it. Mm-hmm. Let me take a short break. Dr. Alex McFarland is my guest. You can always head to alexmcfarland.com learn more about Alex and his writing. Take a short break and be right back. off the show today with Dr. Alex McFarland. AlexMcFarland.com is his website. We're looking at the verse 2 Timothy 3.16, which is all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And we were chatting a little bit about the, the, the rebuking word. The, and, and let's back up a little bit, Alex, and just talk about the... the uh, first part of the verse, all scripture is God breathed. So you sometimes get people say, well, that's an old book and a lot of people wrote it and, and, uh, there's a lot of contradictions in it, but we know better. We do. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up. I was just thinking about that. Interesting Greek word, theopneustos, theos, theology, that's God. And it means breathed by God or or given by inspiration of God. You know, one writer says that uh, the the scripture, the, the word of God, because of its divine origin, word was inscripturated. Isn't that an interesting word? But mm-hmm. it, it, the Bible is the word of God. You know, I write about this in, in a lot of my books. And, and let me just... Um, throw out a kind of a line of reasoning here, because often, Bill, you know, people can sort of glibly say, you know, come on. I was debating a skeptic at a university one time, and I, they, they asked me, somebody came to the mic, and they said, do you really believe the Bible is the Word of God? And I, I said, I do, I do. And, you know, how the Old and New Testaments were preserved and you know, ultimately translated into English and many languages. You know, how we got the Bible is a fascinating story. But let's talk about the content for a second. You know, Genesis through Malachi and the nation of Israel, the promises of the Messiah, and then the New Testament is Matthew through Revelation. And the first four books of the New Testament are the Gospels. We read about the story of Jesus and then the book of Acts. Is, is really kind of the history of the early church and then the letters of Paul, all about the gospel and Christian living. And the New Testament closes with the book of Revelation, which is predominantly about future events. I said, all right, let's just ask the question, if God exists, could God give a, a written document to the human race, a little over 70,000 words, could God give a message 
Could God preserve a message? And could God open our mind that we understand that message? I said, now, I'm not saying it's actual. I'm just asking, is it possible? And I said, you've got to admit, if an almighty, you know, omnipotent, eternal God exists, if God can create the universe, the solar system, planet Earth, you know, seven and a half billion people, um, and each one of us is made up of, you know, trillions of cells that are constantly being replicated. If God could create the universe and all that therein is, do you think God could give a message and preserve that message? And, you know, most audiences would, would say, yeah, it is It is rationally possible. I mean, the idea that the Bible is the Word of God, that's not nonsensical. It is possible God could do that. And I said, okay, when you look at things like fulfilled prophecy and the cohesive, comprehensive message, not to mention the endorsement of Jesus who rose from the grave, you know, I think it's a pretty compelling case that the Bible is a divine book. And like Second Timothy 3.16 says— breathed by God. So I've said to many audiences, Bill, I'll say, look, give it a chance. Rather than talk about the Bible, actually read it. You know, start with the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Mark. You know, those are, you know, easy to read, not, not complicated. And just say, God, if you're real, show me. Mm-hmm. God, if, if you're real, show me. And then begin to read it. Norm Geisler, um, do you recall that name, Bill? Do you remember? Oh, yes. Dr. Norm Geisler, brilliant scholar, PhD from Loyola uh, in Chicago, brilliant guy, passed away about a year and a half ago. Geisler used to say to people, and he debated hundreds of atheists over the years, but he said, look, you know, put God to the test. Say, God, if you are real, if you're real, show me. And read the Gospel of John three times. It's 21 chapters. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the story of Jesus. I mean, you, you could actually read the Gospel of John in under an hour. But Norm Geisler, who was a close personal friend, he said, if you, if you read it three times, you will find that it has the ring of truth, you know. And in fact, Geisler talked about many skeptics he knew who read, you know, one of the four Gospels uh, and did become a believer. But, you know, the idea, my, my point being, of course, if there is an eternal God, it's possible that he gave the Bible and preserved the Bible. Now, there are challenging passages, uh, but verified contradictions, no. Uh, and so the challenging passages... Ninety-five percent of all Bible problems evaporate when you look at what the original language said. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there are a lot of great books. I want to mention a couple of books. Uh, one was um, Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties by Gleason Archer. Another was, uh, yeah, Norm Geisler's wonderful book, When Critics Ask, goes through like every contested passage out there. And, and explains kind of what the challenges are and what the answer is. And then, of course, in a lot of my own books, like The Ten Most Common Objections to Christianity, then, then I wrote two books based on my interviews with atheists 
uh, 10 Answers for Skeptics, 10 Answers for Atheists, we go over literally dozens of the problematic passages that atheists, you know, have issue with. So, Alex, we just have a couple minutes left. Uh, it, after we talked about Second uh, Timothy 3.16, about all Scripture being God um, breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, I think we jumped over to Galatians 1.10. Am I trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? And there's that that can be a, a struggle for a lot of people that they they say they're serving the Lord, but they also struggle with trying to approve man. Well, Bill, man, you're on it, brother. That's that, that those are very convicting passages. That and, and you know, let me say to anyone listening who's either a Sunday school teacher or a group leader or maybe even a pastor. I mean, it's it's easy to preach about, you know, the love of God and, uh, you know, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, Philippians 4.13. That's true. But what about those hard passages where Jesus, the, the loving, tender Son of God, very forcefully warns us about hell and the need to repent, mm-hmm. you know, John 8.24, Jesus said, you know, regarding his Messiahship, John eight twenty four, Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so the answer to Galatians, no, we're, we're not trying to win the approval of man. We are trying to live uh, in obedience to God. And Bill, if the church is obedient to the word of God and the son of God, we've got to proclaim the tough passages too, don't we? Mm-hmm. We sure do. Yeah, that's a good insight, Alex. As always, I look forward to uh, getting your perspective, and thank you uh, so much for connecting those dots. It, it's a, a couple of challenging passages, and I think for many listeners, they're going to go, yeah, I've struggled with that one too. So, yeah. Hey, may, may I shamelessly, brazenly promote a podcast that I'm on? I practically insist. Oh, wow. Well, you know what? Okay, I'm a... Caucasian Christian <laughs> conservative minister. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm on a podcast with uh, an African American brother, Odell Cleveland. He's a black registered Democrat, uh, more politically liberal than me, but uh, we're both Christians. We we started a podcast called I Hear You, and wherever you listen to podcasts, I Hear You dot show s h o w. And look, the thing is. We're, we're politically two different polar opposites, but respectfully, lovingly, we talk about hard issues like race, culture, you know, and then we just agreed we're going to talk about any issue there is, nice. but we're going to come away as friends, and it's called I Hear You. That's and fantastic. And I would ask your, your folks to check it out. Yeah, maybe we'll get you on together next time. Alex, thanks. Hey, that'd be great. Yep. God bless you. Yep. Thanks, Alex Bill. McFarland's been my guest. Head over to alexmcfarland.com. Coming up next little uh, Friday with friends. You'll meet my friend Scott Nesbitt. Be right back. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Show with Bill Arnold.
Welcome back. You know, friendships that live in the heart might be the ones where you don't necessarily see that friend or talk to them very often. But the thought of that person produces a a wave of smiles and joy. And oftentimes it's a a history of shared experiences. And today, I'm glad to be inviting uh, on Fridays with friends, one of those friends, uh, and that is Scott Nesbitt. I've, I've been friends with Scott since high school. And from the day I met him, I knew who he was, and I could have predicted he would be an amazing older version of that same person. And decades later, I'm happy to report he still is. Uh, He is in his 32nd year as the head women's tennis coach at St. Olaf. He also led the men's program for 30 years, starting way back in 1989. And he's led the team to uh, an amazing record of 327 uh, wins to 201 losses. That's uh, including a slew of accolades uh, that go w- with that record. And under the uh, under his leadership, the St. Olaf Women's Tennis Program has appeared in the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference in 11 of the tournament's 13 years. So, in in addition to those duties as a coach, he teaches in the Exercise Science Department, and he serves as the faculty advisor for the St. Olaf Fellowship of Christian Olies, which is F O F C O. And that group is for empowering girls through sports honor house. That's also another thing he is involved with. So, um, in, addition, in addition to that, he uh, he teaches nine classes a year in exercise science department, including tennis, racket sports, lifetime sports, games, fly fishing, fly tying. He and his wife Elaine uh, have two daughters. They're both graduates of Saint Olaf, and he and I go way way back. Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, it is fabulous to be on. Yeah, thank you. And isn't it true that the the friendships that kind of live in your heart, uh, you don't have to, I don't have to see you very often because I don't. But when I think about you, I tell you, I just, I have the warmest, uh, kindest, most joyful feelings for my friend Scott Nesbitt. And, you know, I definitely feel the same way. It's, uh, it's exciting. And I thought when, when you asked me to, uh, Come on your show. I was like, yes, this is something I would love to do. And I thought, you know, it would be fun for me to relay some stories Ooh. of <laughs> uh, when you were younger. Okay. Uh, fun, fun stories. Uh, I think you're going to, I think people will like them, but it'll just give your listeners a chance to know you in a little bit different way. And um, <laughs> should I get going on those? Well, I, yeah, Ryan, get ready to hit the, uh, the edit board. Uh, okay, go ahead, Scott. Okay, so welcome, listeners, and my name is Scott Nesbitt, as you know. I'm a longtime friend of Bill's, but <laughs> I kind of know him as Billy. Uh, when we were playing tennis at Edina East uh, from 1973 to 1975, which is like over 45 years ago, uh, I, I knew him as Billy. Of course, we did refer to him as Bill every once in a while. But we were a part of a huge tennis tradition and in 1975, we had a most wonderful season. Uh, one of those years where, I don't know, pretty much everything went even better than you could have imagined. <laughs> so we had an undefeated season. Uh, we ended up winning the state team championships. And uh, Billy and I, uh, we won the state doubles championships. And um, it was just a, just a fantastic season quite a season. Um, But I wanted to relay a story from 1973. That's when I was a sophomore and Bill was first uh, freshman. Um, 
here's the setting. We were uh, playing a, a match versus Anoka, and Anoka um, wasn't a great tennis team, but they actually had uh, two players on their team that were from their basketball team. Um, <laughs> and Anoka that year was the state runners-up in basketball. And Billy and I were matched up to play these two basketball players. So um, one of these basketball players was about 6'6", 250, and the other one was about 6'5", 245, just great athletes, uh, strong, fast, whatever. Billy and I, on the other hand, so Bill weighed, uh, weighed in at about, 76 pounds and was maybe 4'11", and, and I was about the same, uh, probably 4'10", maybe 72 pounds. We were just these wisps of little munchkins playing these two giants in tennis. Uh, I don't... Uh, so off we were to play this match, and... Um, just yeah, I mean, Bill and I were just better tennis players. We were more. T- I mean, they these two basketball players could have trounced us in almost any other athletic endeavor, but at tennis, they were no match for us. <laughs> uh, we we ended up uh, winning the match decisively. Um, at the end of the ma- uh, tennis match, you're you're supposed to, and we did go up to the net. And I mean, we were Bill and I were just barely taller than the net. We would go up to the net, and I just kind of am picturing myself just stretching as high up <laughs> as I can to shake these guys' hands and thank them for uh, that match in which we had just soundly defeated them. Um, I don't know what you think about that, Billy, but, oh, I cannot forget <laughs> that. Just... I, I remember those monsters. It was so intimidating to be on a court across from two guys that were so huge. And I thought, how are we going to get around these guys? It turns out it was pretty easy to get around them. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, if they ever got mad at us, there was a net that separated us between them. And <laughs> and, and then we could we could have run and escaped somehow. Oh, but, definitely. Um, we would have been able to. Yeah. 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 So that's one of the stories. Uh, on a kind of a more serious note, and I told Billy I was going to tell this story, is that uh, during that time when we were teammates on the Dynese tennis team, um, Bill's father passed on. I don't. Bill, was that when you were a, a junior? I was a junior. Well, yep, my junior year. You, so it was it would have been the same, 1975. Yeah. What, what, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was uh, March of 1975. Yep, and I remember that. So we're so the tennis season is just kind of starting. Uh, we're just kind of getting going on that, and Coach Matlin, our coach, uh, you know, encouraged all of us to go, and we dressed up and. You know, we I never dressed up, you know. Uh, so just looking at my fellow teammates you know, dressed up in suits, and it's like, what's this? We, we, we never hardly ever see each other besides in tennis clothes. Right. Kind of an interesting sight. But, you know, we went there. Um, obviously, it was very sad, but it was just good to be there, um, to, you know, to support you and your family. And uh, it's a, grieve with you, Scott. It's an yeah. image I will never forget. I mean, I turn around and there is the entire tennis team. Here, I'm starting to choke up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 
and they're all in suits. They're all looking at me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a big deal. Thank you yep. for that. You're welcome. And, and you know what? We That's the kind of team we had, and we were, we were you know, we were there for you. Yeah. And, uh, we at least tried to. It's, I mean, very much you were there for little me. Little high school people trying to, you know, right? How do we act? How do we? Oh act? yeah. But uh, it was it was good, and I, I will also never forget that. I, I'm kind of. I had this. One, I had this one brown corduroy suit. I think it had a vest, and oh golly, I can't can't imagine what I looked like. But yeah, it was. You were not the king of fashion. You were just the no, king, king no, of the no, court. No, 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 no. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Another story, Bill. You ready for this one? Yeah, lay it on me. Okay, okay, listeners too. Yeah, I forget I'm talking to your listeners too. So, <laughs> uh, so this coach that we had, he was this fitness guru, uh, Coach John Matlin. He was a, he came from a wrestling background, and he was just always having us do all these physical things. And I think it was good. I mean, we were in good shape. We're jumping ropes. We're doing these Australian hops. We're but every year, kind of the coup de grace was that we were supposed to, we needed to run a mile and then there's some time. Six minutes. I, I'm trying to figure out what, what the time was. I think it was six minutes. <laughs> I was thinking it was six minutes too, but it's like, that's tough. Well, regardless, yeah. it, whatever, whatever it was, it was a difficult, difficult for all of us. Uh-huh. Um, and we knew it was going to be difficult. And, you know, to prepare for this, Coach Madeline had us, you know, doing half miles and things like this. But there's one thing that the team was concerned about, and that was, could Billy do it? <laughs> <laughs> now, the reason why we had this fear is that we had seen Billy run it years before. We had seen Billy run the half miles and preparing, and and. It was always like, whoa, this is, he's just coming in right under the last second. And we were just very concerned. And that was the talk of the team, you know. So today we're going to be running the mile. We need to run it under six minutes or whatever it was. Could Billy do it? Mm. So we did it. We all did it. And then you were out on the course. And (laughs) we're like. (laughs) I hope this has a happy ending. very, I, I guess the main thing I'd say is we were very concerned. Okay. And I don't, all I know is the season continued for you and for all of us. So you must have made it or something happened, but we were going to get you across that line because we had finished, you know, yeah. we we're going to get you across that line, whether we had to carry you or whatever, or had to hide coach Matlin's <laughs> little stopwatch or anything we oh, could yeah. do. Yeah, we we it was. Uh, I I won't forget that either. So no, it was just another it, little story. It's one of those moments where you think, well, I'm a tennis player. I'm not a track star. And so exactly, we had to do a lot of these things that we yeah. had to say. Yeah, and, uh, and Coach Matlin, you know, to his credit, he was a tough, tough man with a very yeah. uh, forceful personality yet a very gentle spirit. And he he's the kind of guy that would get teeth pulled without Novocaine. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, because exactly. he said it was all mind over matter. And he said to us, Scott, and you know, you'll probably remember this, that when you step on the court, you will know in your heart that you have worked harder than your opponents. And we knew, right. that, we knew that to be true. 
Right, right. And I was thinking, you know, our our undefeated season in 1975 was, in, in as I look at it, it's kind of magical. But in another way, you know, when I think about magic, it's like everything lines up and it's good. But, you know, like you said, we worked very, very hard. Mm-hmm. And um, even though we, I think we knew that most likely we had the talent uh, to be able to, you know, beat all the teams. We did. We definitely did not take that for granted. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I don't know if you remember waking up early, you know, like really early in the morning to go to these indoor places and play. Oh God! Do you remember the, that during the winter? Uh, yeah, yeah the we winter. got court time at five a.m. on Saturday. Exactly, and yeah. I don't know if you know this, but uh, you know we had some personalities on that team, and we've talked about some of them: Don Limp Howard and oh yeah, Dave Rose Barden. <laughs> Everyone uh, had a moniker, right? Except you and, and me. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, but my neighbor Greg Swincina, who I called we called Swin. Yeah, um, he was a tough one to get up at five o'clock, and I. I was, you know, since he lived right across the street from me, um, and I was driving, I was responsible <laughs> to do pretty much the, the second hardest thing. The first hardest thing is getting you to run that six-minute mile. Yes. But the second hardest thing was to get him up and going and to the club by 5 o'clock in the morning. So I would wake up, you know, 4.30 <laughs> and look across the street at his darkened upstairs window sound asleep <laughs> sound asleep and there's no cell phones or anything like yeah. that so i was outside his door throwing pine cones oh, at his window yeah. and all of a sudden some light would go on and mm-hmm. he'd come out all disheveled and, yeah and you're not making so, any of this up i know this all to be true which is very oh, funny it, it, it's exaggerated yeah. everything's exaggerated yeah let me take a short break scott when we come back i yeah. want to let our listeners okay. know a little bit more about you and what you're doing and your uh your exercise uh, background and, and what you teach at St. Olaf. Scott Nesbitt is my guest. He's Friday with Friends. We'll be right back. It is Friday with friends. I'm getting a chance to catch up with my dear friend Scott Nesbitt. He's in his 32nd year as the head women's tennis coach at St. Olaf here in Northfield, Minnesota. That's um, quite a, a run you've had coaching, Scott. I know you've done men's and women's. Um, but I'm also interested in what you teach at the school. 
Yeah, so um, Billy and your audience, I am both a teacher and a coach. Um, so I teach, I can, I consider myself a doctor of gameology. <laughs> I, so I, <laughs> I grew up playing lots of family games and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talked previously about tennis. I mean, tennis is obviously a game, but I'm not just talking about those kind of games. I'm talking about like made up games. So for example, my family grew up playing pine cone golf, <laughs> <laughs> You know, a game that we made up and Mm -hmm. another game called Ledge Ball and a game called Dibble Dabble. I mean, these are games that nobody knows about because our family made them up. Mm -hmm. Um, But this, I teach a class and I I do a lot in my classes with games. And I use games, uh, kind of my my theme is I use games to bring people together. Um, And what I mean by that is, you know, you can play a game with somebody that you don't agree with, um, different belief system, different culture, different um, age, different generation. And the game can, lots of times games can bring it together. Um, I did this with my grandparents. You know, my grandparents in those days, they just didn't have much to do with kids, but we would play games with them Mm -hmm. and things would change. And then I get to know my grandparents. But so this is what I do. I teach uh, one of the classes I teach is called Lifetime Sports and Games, and we invent uh, we play regular games like tennis, but we invent games. Love it. Like, um, let's see some of the games: uh, foot croquet, uh, paper airplane horseshoes. <laughs> oh, you should see these crazy things. Oh, they sound fantastic. Um, yeah, I also teach my classes how to juggle. I'm a big, I really am getting into juggling. Juggling's not really a game, but I mean, you can make it and you can make anything into a game if yeah. you want. Yeah. I but w- it's so, so much fun. Yeah. yeah. I watched your chapel when you spoke at chapel at St. Olaf, I think back in the fall. And you said during this COVID period, and you encouraged us to uh, get outside and just move. And I thought, boy, is that an important message to be reminded of? Because it right. seems that lately there's a lot more inside time with more staring at a screen and less moving. You know what? I mean, you're exactly right. I'm glad you watched that, Chapel. Thanks for doing that. Um, but I, I feel really strongly about this, and it's one of the things I do in my classes. But last semester, not last semester, but two semesters ago, spring semester, when we were first, when St. Olaf had to go to totally online classes, um, I was online with all my students, and this is what I, I was keeping track of each student, and they were doing kind of a movement log, and that's what we were doing. We were trying to get them, I was trying to get them outside and moving as much as possible. And I got a lot of reports, and I found this true with myself too, is that if I would get outside, take a walk, walk my dog, do some juggling, maybe do some gardening, hit some tennis balls against a wall. Um, you know, it just helped my soul. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, and it also made me more productive when I did have to go back to my computer or, uh, be inside. I mean, I did some moving stuff inside too, you know, yoga and stuff like that, but, um, it just made all the difference. And my students, you know, a lot of them felt the same way. It, It just, it helped them mentally. It helped them. Like I said, it just helped my soul. Yeah. Scott, uh, nowadays you've got like an Apple Watch that gives you a reminder every 20 minutes to stand up 
and to I move. know, and I, and it, I think that's really important, too. Yeah. But I mean, you, it's something that I do a lot when I'm at the computer a lot is just remember to actually stand up. Yeah. Just even that is really important. Yeah. Um, Could you yeah. imagine someone trying to sell that idea to us in high school or that generation? <laughs> You want to you want to get outside and move? It's like, excuse me, that's what we do seventeen hours a day. Exactly, but we didn't have you know all this computer stuff. And I know we definitely we definitely didn't have the pandemic. We were, you and I were just outside and doing stuff all, all day long. Yeah, yeah. tell uh, tell the listeners about your experience with COVID. I I heard you talk about that on your chapel talk, and I laughed out loud. Oh yeah, so it was interesting. I I. You know, at, at St. Olaf, we do testing all the time, and I tested positive, and it was like, what? I've tried to be so careful, and but, you know, that means I had to isolate for mm, 10 days. Mm-hmm. And I, I never had any symptoms, and later I even took one of those antibiotic tests, and my wife and I, and then we, didn't, we didn't test positive for that either. So most likely it was one of those false positive things. But nevertheless... I set up a camp in my backyard. <laughs> we called it Camp COVID. Yeah. I had a tent. I had a hammock. I had a fire pit. I set up a workstation. And it was just basically me out there, um, you know, working, living, you know, exercising, juggling. I, 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 I think one of the things you're referring to is we have an apple tree in the backyard. Yeah. And I found some apples and started juggling those things. Yeah. And, so, about, um, and about day nine, your neighbor says, what are you doing? I know, yeah. He saw me from two houses down. It's like, <laughs> what's going on over there? And I, you know, I I called him on the phone. I said, you know, this is the situation. And, you know, I'm just kind of basically living back here. And, you know, I, I, I something I didn't say in my chapel talk, but at night I would, you know, call, call Elaine, my wife, at, and talk to her. <laughs> For me in the tent and her in in the house and the, <laughs> say good night to her and you know uh, say a little prayer and go tonight. Yeah, it was weird, but it's you know what, it was all good. You yeah, know? yeah. Uh, I was. I mean, I'm glad I didn't have to do it more than ten days. But right. Um, so Scott, was, just a great reminder to listeners uh, to move, to get outside, and to move. And I, I, I obviously want to be sensitive to people who would be nervous being outside. They don't want to slip on ice. They you know things like that. But right. uh, what's what are just a, maybe a a good tip for m- moving if you're otherwise sedentary? You know, I think the main thing that I found is that walking is fabulous. Okay. Um, you know, and a lot of people walk their dogs. A lot of my students were always walking their dogs, but just walking. Now, obviously, now during the winter when it's slippery, mm-hmm. it's tough. Yep. And so, I mean, I do things like walk around in the house. Okay. Um, or I, what I do a lot is I walk in the streets, which can be a little bit more dangerous, but I walk streets that aren't very much traveled because streets are usually less icy than sidewalks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get a better grip. Sure. But um, just any way that you can get moving. Um, you know, it used to be a lot of people now, you know, now that clubs are starting to open up a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, people will walk inside or exercise inside. Yeah. That's that's a nice thing to do. Scott, but, well, thank you yeah. for thank you for doing the show. Here's to 45 plus years of friendship and uh, Oh, and 45 more to go. I yeah. mean, what would that leave us at about 105? Uh, something know. like that, yeah. And greetings yeah. to uh to Dr. Elaine. and Mrs. Nesbeth and Elaine yeah. and just wanted yes. to say hi to your parents as well. Oh, great. Wonderful Billy and nice to talk to you listeners and uh, thanks for the wonderful opportunity to 
to tell some fun stories about Billy when he was little. Nice. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.